It seems to me that everyone reading the Bible uses metaphysics. Um, there's no such thing as a reading of scripture without metaphysics. The only question is whether we acknowledge the metaphysic that we use or not. And when we don't, or when we're under the illusion that we're simply reading, quote unquote, my Bible, as you put it just now, um, the real danger is that unwittingly and unintentionally, we read the Bible through a metaphysic of which we're not even aware. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. So often when Christians, especially if they've been trained to read their Bible, a very, very good thing, but so often Bible reading Christians or even evangelicals bump up against Greek philosophy and, well, we begin to get a little bit nervous. All of a sudden, we're not quite sure what Athens has anything to do with Jerusalem, and we're not quite so sure whether we should even be trusting, say, a Plato or an Aristotle. And uh, more so yet, we're a bit puzzled. Why did so many of the early Christian fathers, uh, including some of the the later medieval uh, theologians, why did they engage Greek philosophy in different ways? And is that something we should be doing as well? Well, many evangelicals out there will have a great suspicion in this regard. They will say something like, well, that's Greek. I am just going to read my Bible. What's so ironic about this type of suspicion is that, well, if we know our history, it's not all that different from some of those who came before us, who we might call Protestant liberals. In their tradition, you think of, for example, uh, an Adolf von Harnack, Uh, They also made this type of objection, and they even uh, went further yet to say, well, these Greek ideas and structure and concepts, these have even corrupted Christianity. Some of them even went so far to look at, say, Nicaea or Chalcedon, which are trying to understand not just the Trinity, but the person of Christ. And, well, they even disregarded these major creeds as an imposition or something being forced on Scripture. Well, is this true? And how should we think of a major figure like Plato, for example? Do his ideas have any profit for Christianity? Surely there may be some things to critique. Uh, We understand that there is a difference between, say, a Plato and uh, many of the Christian doctrines of the faith, but at the same time, can someone like Plato and the the heritage he leaves behind him, can some of these ideas actually serve, be a handmaiden to both our interpretation of the Bible as well as our theological construction? Well, these are big questions, hard questions, and I have asked a special guest to come on the Credo podcast to answer some of these. And it's none other than Hans Borsma, who is the St. Benedict Servants of Christ Professor of Ascetical Theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. He taught at Regent College in Vancouver for many, many years. You may know him by so many of the books he's written, such as Scripture as Real Presence, Sacramental Exegesis in the Early Church, as well as a more recent book called Seeing God, in which he looks at that grand vision that Scripture talks about. But one of his most uh, recent books is a book called Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew. I love this title, and one of the chapters I have found so intriguing because it gets at really so many of the questions we've been asking to start this podcast. The chapter is called No Plato, No Scripture. Hans, thank you for joining me on the Credo Podcast. 
Not at all, Matthew. It's good to be with you. Now, you've heard uh, some of these objections, I'm sure. You, you, no doubt you're familiar with them because you write and talk on so many of these topics. Perhaps you've heard this one before that, well, we don't want to impose uh, this pagan philosophy, uh, say, take Plato, for example. Uh, we don't want to impose that on Holy Scripture. Now, I'm guessing you don't disagree with that, but at the same time, you do think that, well, if we're understanding philosophy in the right way, it actually can serve an important purpose for everything from biblical interpretation to Christian theology itself. Maybe you can start us off and just help us to understand that maybe some of our listeners are a bit suspicious towards Greek philosophy in general. How is it that someone like Plato and and so many of these, uh, well, we could call it a, a type of metaphysic, why, why is it that uh, metaphysics itself should actually uh, not only enter into our theology, but but perhaps even guide our exegesis? Yeah, it's a great question, Matthew. Thank you for that. And and let me begin by by affirming some of the suspicion uh, that that you're referring to. So when you when you mention that some of our our listeners may be worried about imposing alien ideas and in particular an alien uh, metaphysic upon the scripture, so that we would uh, read scripture through through an uh, external lens, as it were. Um, I, I think there's something in that in that uh, objection or in that apprehension that we should affirm. Um, we should definitely not um, use an alien metaphysic and simply impose it on the scriptures. So, to the extent that some of your listeners may be worried about that or concerned about that, um, I would simply echo what they're saying. We should indeed not do that. Um, now, the interesting thing is that my um, interest in Christian Platonism and um, the topic that we're talking about, no Plato, no scripture, the second chapter of this book, that, that those things are precisely, um, uh, that those topics or that, that, that issue about Christian Platonism is precisely designed uh, to ensure that we do not impose an alien metaphysic upon the scriptures. Now, that may be, it may sound somewhat, somewhat counterintuitive, so maybe, maybe you can allow me to explain. It seems to me that everyone reading the Bible uses metaphysics. Um, there's no such thing as a reading of Scripture without metaphysics. The only question is whether we acknowledge the metaphysic that we use or not. And when we don't, or when we're under the illusion that we're simply reading, quote-unquote, my Bible, as you put it just now, um, the real danger is, that unwittingly and unintentionally, we read the Bible through a metaphysic of which we're not even aware, mm. a metaphysic that is indebted to modern presuppositions, contemporary metaphysics, and a metaphysic that is rather alien to the metaphysic that I think is presupposed all over the scriptures. And with that last expression, a metaphysic that is presupposed all over the scriptures, um, I want to make the point that the metaphysic that we should use to read the scriptures is not not one that's, that's outside of the scriptures and one that we simply impose upon it. Rather, the kind of metaphysic, the kind of lens that we use to read scripture is always a theological one. That is to say, there's always a cyclical relationship between scripture and metaphysics. Um, we don't have a metaphysic, or we ought not to have, I should say, the metaphysic um, simply imposed from the outside on the Bible, uh, but neither is it the case that we read the Bible uh, without any metaphysical lens whatsoever. So there's always a, a, meta a, a cyclical um, relationship between those two. And um, those who read Scripture with wisdom are aware of that cyclical relationship and try to read Scripture through metaphysical lenses that are compatible with Scripture. Let me give you one example. Um, think, think of Epicureanism in the ancient world. Uh, Epicurus, a uh, philosopher who, in some ways, to put it crudely, 
uh, felt that this worldly goods are ultimate and that it is satisfaction of this worldly goods um, that, that constitutes the, the greatest good for, for human beings. Epicureanism, with its materialist presuppositions and its disworldly presuppositions, was never applauded by the early church. Why not? Because Epicurus's metaphysic was considered to be diametrically opposed to the divine scriptures, and rightly so, I think. And so you'll never encounter any of the church fathers applauding Epicureanism. Why then did they applaud um, Platonism in certain respects? Well, the reason is, I think, that in significant respects, they found a Christian metaphysic echoed in the scriptures. They saw things in Plato and in the Platonic tradition that they believed fundamentally were compatibly, compatible uh, with Holy Scripture. And so the Church Fathers were always cautious and careful to ensure that their metaphysic was not one that, um, that was uh, strange or, or, or ill-fitted mm-hmm. to the Scriptures confessed by the Church. Now, you've used a phrase here, Christian Platonism, that is a very important phrase. And in order to really elaborate on the point you just made, which is is quite crucial uh, to understand your argument, maybe we should define Christian Platonism. Uh, And I I think one of the most helpful things that you've done is you've laid out, uh, I don't know uh, if you want to call them five points. Uh, maybe the five points of Christian Platonism, but uh, these five points, uh, maybe they don't say everything, but they certainly get at the the very essence of what Christian Platonism uh, is in the first place. So let, let play along with me here. How about I uh, name them? I'll name them one by one, and but but not all at once, and I'll allow you to to elaborate on each of them. So the first one, and, and let me just. Uh, Back up here a second. Uh, here we are basically saying that we're defining Christian Platonism over against Hans, what you call anti-nominalism. And to our listeners, if if those are phrases that are strange to your ears, uh, hold on because uh, they'll become clear, I think, in a minute. So the first thing you say, Hans, is that uh, Christian Platonism, number one, well, when we refer to it, we're saying that anti it's it's anti materialism claims that bodies and their properties are not the only things that exist. What do you mean by that? Um, well, um, if you think of the five senses, we can we we can see, we can touch, we can smell, and so on. Five senses uh, assume a world that we can empirically encounter, that we do empirically encounter. That is to say, it's a sensible world. The world around us that we that we live in and move in every day, and if we take that world of the senses, the sensible world around us, as the one and only thing that exists, um, it would it would seem to imply that we can that we truly know that world um, once we've mapped its DNA, as it were. Once we've we've figured out every little detail of it, every little detail that is to say that is accessible to the senses. Um, such a world is material uh, in character. And what, what Christian Platonism says is that, yes, you can empirically analyze the world in, that, in this way. Yes, you can map the world by means of its DNA in some sense. But that's not to know the world. That's not to know the deepest reality of the world. That's not to know what really counts in the world. Because the world isn't limited to its sensible material um, and, and observable uh, components. There is uh, an intellectual. There are intellectual realities um, that that um, constitute the deepest truth of created things. Created things have the ultimate being for Christians, at least, in the eternal Word of God, in the eternal Logos of God. Um, and it is that reality, the existence of creation within the Word of God, that constitutes its deepest, deepest truth, its ultimate goodness, 
That's what makes it good. Um, that's what makes it beautiful. The reason the empirical world is beautiful, beautiful is that it participates in the eternal word of God. Um, so anti-materialism says, no, it's not. It, it doesn't do justice to this world uh, when we, when we, as it were, isolate it all by itself, and when we um, shoo all intellectual realities upstairs as of no significance and perhaps even as non-existent. No, to truly understand this world, we must understand its its deeper its deeper reality. Um, one one comparison that I sometimes use for my students is is um, a, a poetry class. Imagine yourself reading a poem, profound poem, and you're looking at the grammar, you're analyzing uh, the grammar in detail, you're looking at the meaning of, of every single word that occurs in the verb. And once you've analyzed all of that, um, you, you, yes, you have deeper insight, you have greater insight into that poem, but nobody is going to be under the illusion that by simply analyzing the grammar, by simply analyzing what you have in front of you before your eyes, that you grasp the poem in all of its depth. The DNA, as it were, the grammatical DNA doesn't make up the poem. Yes, at some level it does. But there are deeper things in the poem um, that you can only encounter if you are intellectually, emotionally, spiritually prepared to encounter them. Best poems are the ones with the greatest depth. Well, creation is like an awesome poem. You can only grasp it. I mean, if, if you properly, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually are prepared for that. Mm. So the first one is. Uh, Christian Platonism is anti-materialism, but what you just said relates a lot to the second one, uh, anti-mechanism, which maintains that the natural order, including physical events, cannot be fully explained by physical or mechanical causes. This isn't all that unrelated to what you just said, is it? Yes, it is related to it. In fact, each of the five points, as we will see once we go through them all, each of the five points uh, are are related to, to every one of the other points. Yes. Um, and you're quite right that anti-mechanism is intimately linked to anti-materialism. In a strictly material world, um, the one thing leads to the next uh, because it is related to uh, to the to the next thing by way of cause and effect. The only only relationship that that sensible objects have to one another on this uh, on this uh, understanding is by way of uh, one thing causing something else by way of its effect. Um, it's all this worldly, of course, because this worldly realities is all we have. Material, visible, sensible realities is all we have. And so the only way in which something can be caused is by one material object having an effect on another material object. Uh, any sort of, uh, let's say, uh, desire, any sort of final causality, that is to say, uh, the telos, the aim of something, causing causing uh, something to be or causing uh, something to move in a particular direction uh, is out of the question. Any sort of formal causality is, is uh, that is to say, um, the notion of eternal forms um, constituting the reality of something and, and moving it in a certain direction in line with its character is out of the question. Um, everything is reduced to efficient, this worldly cause and effect. Mm. Um, uh, what it means is that, that um, divine spiritual causes um, are, are um, precluded, excluded right from the outset. Um, this worldly causality is the only causality we have, and that is to say, everything is reduced um, to power, power structures. Now, the third one really uh, carries on so much of what you've said, anti-nominalism. Anti-nominalism argues that reality is made up not just of individuals, each uniquely situated in time and space, but that two individual objects can be the same in essence, 
while still being unique individuals. Now, this is a big one, and I think I'm right in saying that so much turns on on this third point. Can you start us off here uh, by mm-hmm. by just defining what is nominalism, and what here do you mm-hmm. mean uh, by anti-nominalism? Yes. Um, let me first say that you're right in in observing that this one is a big one. <laughs> At least for me, it is. <laughs> it is the most significant one of the five, I think, and it's the one that drives Christian Platonism. Um, to understand nominalism, it's perhaps best to situate it over against realism. Nominalism and realism are the two main, the two big metaphysical options, quote unquote. Um, Realism states that eternal ideas or forms are real. So if you take Plato, for example, uh, Plato would say that the reason why two dogs uh, look alike and the reason why we call both of them dogs is that they share in some sort of eternal dogness. Um, There's an eternal idea that, that explains yeah, why these dogs look alike. And so eternal ideas, eternal species, eternal forms are real. It's a realist ontology. Um, by contrast, nominalism says, no, we, we call these two creatures, both of them, we call both of them dogs. We name them, we name both of them dogs. We give the, to use the Latin term, we give them both the nomen, nomina plural, nomina we give the names, the nomina, to both of these creatures or to both of these animals. We call them both dogs. But it would be silly, a nominalist might argue. Uh, since they're just names, it would be silly to assume that there is such a thing as an eternal dogness. Um, those, are, those are figments of the imagination, figments of our brains that we can easily do without. We can explain the whole world, the material world around us, without recourse to such eternal spiritual principles. Uh, and so a nominalist reduces, um, uh, reduces reality to what we can see um, uh, with our eyes. And as a result, we are now subjectively um, assigning or constructing um, the world around us according to our observations. When we see two things that look alike, we call them something. We name them in a certain way. Subjectively, that is to say, we impose a certain identity upon these realities. Mm. Now that's that's a modern, a modern way of, of looking at the world around us. Um, the earlier understanding, the pre-modern understanding, is 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 much more Platonic in that it will that it will assume that there, there's a reason, a divine reason, for the similarity between created things. However, exactly we explain it, uh, modernity makes a shift, takes a shift, and it, it it separates heavenly things from earthly things, and tries to explain earthly things. Um, um, in and by themselves, mm. without recourse to anything else. And when you start doing that, you're going to have to say in the end, well, I, whatever the reason for the similarity, um, we, 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 we simply name things in a certain way. We, we, there's no ontological reason, no ontological foundation for the similarity. Now, you mentioned modernity a minute ago, and perhaps we could press that further even to even into post-modernity, which uh, brings us to number four. Christian Platonism is anti-relativism, rejects the notion, both in terms of knowledge and morals, that human beings are the measure of all things, suggesting instead that goodness is a property of being. What do you mean by this one? Yes, you mentioned post postmodernity, and it seems to me that that postmodernity or late modernity is a logical outcome hmm. of modernity. It's not as if something radically new happens in postmodernity. Yeah, postmodernity, rightly, I think, or late modernity, as I would prefer to call it, rightly sees that modernity has certain implications, including moral implications, 
and late modernity willingly and readily accepts those those implications of of a modern uh, a modern metaphysic. Now, you you may recall that that a moment ago, I explained that if you if you assume a nominalist rather than a realist universe, and you're forced subjectively to name certain things that look alike. Uh, similarly, you are forced also to impose subjectively to impose value upon whatever it is that you encounter. Whatever values there may be in this world are values that we are now have now imposed upon the things around us. They don't intrinsically in and of themselves, because of their participation in eternal ideas, have significance. No, they have significance in as much as we acknowledge their significance. That is to say, goodness is something that we're now forced to impose or to 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 um, acknowledge in some way. But really, this it is a subjective imposition that we're, that we're forced to subjectively impose upon the world around us. Um, the difficulty, it seems to me, and 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 increasingly it becomes obvious um, that this is a difficulty, is that my subjective valuation may differ from yours, and often will. And so the conflict of my will with yours about our respective evaluations of certain moral issues um, leads to interminable disagreement um, and that we cannot possibly rational, rationally solve because we're no longer convinced that there is a rationality that is inherent within the world because of its participation in eternal truth. Mm. And if there is no rational um, way of, of, of adjudicating our differences of evaluation and evaluation, um, the only way in which we can, we can um, come to decisions about issues is by, um, by means of forcing one another, by means of imposition of the will. Um, hence, the, the sharp conflicts uh, that characterize our society, uh, not least of, of which uh, um, is, is the United States of America as we see it today. Number five, and this one is, I think, very practical in its application. Anti-Christian Platonism is anti-skepticism, maintains that the real can in some manner become present to us so that knowledge is within reach. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, yes. Um, so a, a realist ontology um, assumes that eternal ideas, however we understand them exactly, um, have real existence. Now, a Christian would say they have existence in the eternal word of God. Um, that is to say, God thinks the world or speaks the world or looks the world into being. And as he does so, he does this in the eternal generation of his son. So there is a there is a, a an, an eternal grounding on a Christian understanding um, for the existence of the world, and it's that eternal grounding in the logos or in the word uh, that makes this world that we see rational, that makes it logical, as as, as in the Greek word logos, it makes it patterned on the eternal word. There is a certain structure, an orderly, rational structure to this world, um, on, on at least a Christian understanding of the doctrine of creation. It's not an arbitrary flux of things. The beauty, the goodness, and especially the truth of things are grounded um, within God's eternal generation, within the Father's eternal generation of His Son. Um, if that is true... And if, moreover, the human mind um, is equipped um, to correspond in some manner to, this, to the rational or quote-unquote logical structure of this world, um, then, then the human mind um, has some, some participatory access 
to that truth. It's not to say that we completely comprehend the world around us. We don't. We never can, it seems to me. But it, it is also not the case that we're completely without, without any link to the, to the world around us. It is not as though um, we're entirely uh, without recourse and can only look in despair and, and, and agonizing um, fear at a world that we, that we simply do not comprehend in any way whatsoever. No, we do comprehend it, and we do have access to the, what you might call the, 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 internal, um, the internal forms of things because um, God emanates this world, or creates this world in line with who he is, and he has made us in such a way um, that, that we have our own proper place within this created world. Human beings, you could say, and I'm using a term that church fathers often use, human beings are like, are like uh, microcosms. Um, they, they, they are an in-between, as it were, uh, between the intelligible structure of the world by means of human reason and the embodied, sensible, um, uh, observable, uh, things that we see around us. Human beings have two components, intellectual and material component. And because of that fact, they have their they have they have rational access, I think, to some some um or, or they have some participation in the um in the logical structure uh of the of, of the creation as it has its origin in the eternal word of God. Now You've labeled this Christian Platonism, and to those who are just learning uh, these five points, uh, they may be wondering, well, in terms of the history, how do we see uh, Platonism? How do we, what, what figures do you identify with Platonism? And how do we see, uh, say some of the church fathers, what church fathers, for example, begin to engage Platonism um, in a way that they think is, is compatible and even serves Christianity. So maybe can you give us a little bit of a historical background here for those uh, who aren't familiar with its origins and, and how it comes into contact with Christian figures? Yeah. Let, let me first say that um, you can, you can, Pick pretty much any of the church fathers, or any uh, any pre-modern theologian, mm. and and you'll you'll find in that in that person a Christian Platonist. Uh, today, when you when you when people think of Christian Platonism, they think, well, this is this is maybe some 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 you know strange uh, uh, philosophical position that that is at variance with biblical Christianity. Um, any such notion would have been alien. To, to an earlier uh, pre-modern um, uh, Christian. Pre-modern Christians would have almost universally assumed um, some sort of uh, Platonic um, understanding of reality. Now, and, and that means that you could go to Eastern as well as to Western church fathers. Uh, to my mind, and I explain some of this in my book, Heavenly Participation, but to my mind, you see the beginnings of it in in figures such as Irenaeus, uh, Athanasius. Um, you see it in uh, Origen of, of Alexandria. You see it in Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, you see it in Maximus, John of Damascus. Uh, in the West, you see it um, in St. Augustine. You see it in the entire Augustinian tradition, including even in St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. So that whole tradition in varying ways, and, and, and people and, and different theologians articulate this in different ways, but invariably, all of these theologians uh, are, are um, Christian Platonists in one way or another. And what, uh, when you use a word like Platonism, uh, you know, you've mentioned so many of these these church fathers and even medieval theologians. What Greek thinkers specifically? Do you find them engaging, or or even quoting at times? Yeah. Well, if you take Saint Augustine for example, um, Plotinus is is a very direct influence on on Augustine, um, and um, uh, there's little doubt 
um, that that um, Saint Augustine um, read, for example, Plotinus on beauty in the Aeneid. Um, so Plotinus, much more so than than Plato directly, impacted Augustine. Much of the corpus of of Plato, in fact, was unknown in the West. And the Timaeus was known. Some other works of Plato may have been known, um, but much of Plato was unknown, especially in the West. Plotinus, on the other hand, the Aeneid. Uh, uh, was was very much uh, known to the Western tradition, and I should also say, in terms of the East, for example, that um, the Platonic tradition comes um, comes by way of, uh, for example, Jewish Christianity or sorry, Jewish Jewish philosophy. Um, when you think of of Philo, for example, um, his Middle Platonism. Um, impacted origin and indirectly, therefore, also impacted St. Gregory of Nyssa. So there are different streams of, of, of thought, um, but all of all of it comes, I think, from the Platonic tradition and ultimately from Plato himself. Now, that history is so important, isn't it? Because once we start to rub up against, uh, say, the fourth century, and we start to see so many of these Trinitarian debates, uh, and controversies evolve. We think, of course, of the fourth century debate with Arianism and how uh, it's not just an Athanasius uh, or a Gregory of Nazianzus, but but someone like a Gregory of Nyssa, who is uh, defending what Gregory believes to be uh, a biblical and what we would call an orthodox understanding of, of the Trinity, uh, over against uh, the th- the ideas and and uh, the threat of of Arianism and the way that it's subordinating the sun. One of the points you make, though, which which I think is so insightful, is you come back to Christian Platonism, with Gregory of Nyssa in particular, and you begin to show the ways that Christian Platonism actually enters into that debate, that controversy, and the ways that Gregory actually uses. Christian Platonism to make his argument. Can you give us maybe an example or two? Because I think that, you know, our listeners out there, they may be thinking, okay, you know, I've got my doctrine of the Trinity and uh, I, that doesn't have anything to do with, with, you know, our discussion so far, but, but Gregory didn't think that way, did he? No, he did not. Um, it, it seems to me that, if you start thinking "quote unquote" biblically, you just want to read uh, read the Bible as, as as you put it earlier, without any sort of metaphysical presuppositions. What we would typically tend to do, because we're Western modern Christians, what we would typically tend to do is we would read it in nominalist fashion. That is to say, we would read it in an atomized fashion. Um, that also means, with regard to the doctrine of the Trinity, for example that it's tempting to modern Christians to think of a family of three persons. There are three gods, that each of which has its own will. Mm. And these three gods get along really well together, of course. They're in harmony. They don't disagree with one another. Their wills, plural, tend to converge. Um, and there's this wonderful agreement of these three gods of this family of gods is so close that we could almost call it a unity. Um, that's how, how closely aligned their wills are. Still, at the end of the day, there are three wills. There are three centers of consciousness. Um, now, the, the picture that I've just given to you is, is a very nominalist read of the Trinity. Um, in theological terms, it's often called social Trinitarianism. And I've, I've just painted a picture of social Trinitarianism that is very, very heavy on the threeness of God, mm-hmm. uh, such that it talks about three gods, and social Trinitarianism, thankfully, generally doesn't do that. But there's a reason, I think, why social Trinitarianism flourishes in a nominalist universe. The reason is that we tend to think of, of um, anything that exists as existing separately, apart from, distinct from everything else. 
St. Gregory Nyssa thought about the Trinity quite differently. Um, his treatise uh, that I use in, in, in my book um, is called On Why There Are Not Three Gods. Sometimes St. Gregory of Nyssa is used for social Trinitarianism, but I think he's misused uh, when, we, when we employ him <laughs> to defend social Trinitarianism. St. Gregory of Nyssa actually does the opposite in his book. He, he insists that although, yes, one might, one might perhaps use the analogy of three, three individuals, three men, quote-unquote, say Peter, James, and John, to talk about the Trinity, the unity of the divine persons is much, much greater, is infinitely greater than the unity of uh, three individual human beings. And so he, he, he employs the Platonic notion of an idea or a universal um, to, to explain that God um, is, is, is not um, an individual object as if God competed, say, with, with other beings. God is not one being among many beings. Um, he, for Gregor Nyssa, in fact, it wouldn't be accurate even to say that there are three men, quote-unquote. Why not? Because for Gregory, the word anthropos, the word man, is a universal. And likewise, likewise he says, we need to emphasize um, the, the, the uh, unity of God rather than the distinction among, among the divine persons. It would be blasphemous for Gregory to talk about three distinct gods, as it would be to talk about three distinct wills in, in connection with God. And there's one divine will because there's only one divine essence. Now let's use one more example as we bring things to a close. Uh, we've talked about the Trinity and how Christian Platonism uh, starts to show itself uh, in a way that actually safeguards what, what the biblical text is, is trying to uh, communicate in regards to the Trinity and, and Christ. But if we focus on Christ for a minute, we could look at a figure like Irenaeus and his uh, emphasis on recapitulation. I find this so fascinating because when we look at Irenaeus, and, and you, you say uh, essentially the same, uh, we, we see that, well, he's, he's actually reading Scripture, and we could say typology in Scripture. He's actually identifying this, but he's He's not doing so apart from a metaphysic. You say at one point, it is a Platonic metaphysic that allows us to make sense of the language of Christ as archetype. And, and from there, you talk about Christ as the new Adam or Christ as the new humanity. Now, this is so, uh, this is so important because so often uh, those who object to anything Greek or Christian Platonism in particular, will say things like, well, I'm going to do biblical theology, and I'm not going to get distracted with systematic theology, let alone philosophy, or, or allow any type of metaphysic to, to come into my reading of Scripture. But you seem to be making the point that, well, if we're reading Scripture the way it's intended to be read, seeing not only the first Adam, but the, the second Adam as a new Adam, and and giving us a new humanity, well, then actually a Platonic metaphysic, it, it enables us. It, 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 it's, it's really foundational for even using language to speak about Christ in terms of type and archetype. Can you explain, uh, can, can you explain this a little bit? Yes, thank you for that question, Matthew. Um, to my mind, this, this issue especially, Christology especially, is 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 the key reason why dogmatically or why theologically um, we need Christian Platonism. Um, and, and you're right to, to, to go back in your question to Irenaeus and to his understanding of recapitulation. Um, uh, let, let's think for a moment about Romans 5 or, or, or about 1 Corinthians 15 and, and, and your language of, of the first and the second Adam, the old man and the new man, as St. Paul calls it. And um, what is it that makes us relate to the first Adam 
And what is it that makes us relate to the second Adam? Um, is it merely the case that we relate to the first Adam, to the second Adam externally, so that there was once a fi- there's one figure uh, called Adam, another figure called Christ, and another figure called Matthew, and another figure called Hans? Is, is that how we ought to relate or understand the relationship um, between these various figures? Biblically speaking, I think, on a, on a Pauline understanding, that's not how we, how we should construe that, those relationships. Yeah. Why not? Because if we're merely related to one another externally as distinct persons, separate from one another, um, it's impossible to explain how it is, A, that we are somehow implicated in Adam's sin. But more importantly, it also becomes impossible to explain how we may be saved even through Jesus Christ. According to um, the tradition that begins with the Apostle Paul and that goes on in in Irenaeus and from there into the Christian tradition, um, there is a universal human nature um, that is that of Jesus Christ. He's not simply one nature among many natures. His is not just one nature among many natures. Rather, Jesus Christ, as the eschatological new humanity, in himself recapitulates, as Ernest would put it, or or recaps, we would say, (laughs) um, all of human nature, uh, yours, mine, uh, everyone who has ever existed and will exist in his own person, in his own humanity. Um, and, and, and to understand, therefore, the Christo, the in Christ that the Apostle Paul speaks of so often, um, in order for that language to make any sense at all, uh, his humanity cannot simply be a different humanity from ours. A nominalist metaphysics simply isn't adequate um, in any way to explain how it is that we could possibly be in Christ, because his nature would always remain strictly separate from our nature. Uh, the earlier Christian understanding, a Christian Platonist understanding, uh, always recognized um, that humanity um, is, is um, real. Humanity as such is real um, in the eternal logos of God, and has become real in the created world in and through the incarnation. And it is in that humanity, the humanity of Christ, um, that we are saved. We've been talking to Hans Borsma, who is who teaches theology at Ashota House and has really written so many uh, books that, that really get at the idea of not just scripture, but what scripture has to do with real presence and what it means to talk about seeing God. But his most recent book is called Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew. As you can tell from our conversation, Hans has been really carefully uh, defining and specifying what Christian Platonism is, what it is not, and also helping us see how Christian Platonism was understood by some of the early church fathers and some of the greatest theologians, individuals like Irenaeus or Gregory of Nyssa, whether it's the doctrine of the Trinity, or perhaps it's even uh, something as important as biblical theology and typology and what that has to do with Christ and, and who we are in Christ. All of this comes back to metaphysics. And Hans reminds us that, well, we can't read the Bible without a metaphysic, and we're actually quite foolish if we do. Hans, let me give you the last word at this point, because I think some of our listeners, maybe they're tracking with this, but they, they may just default and uh, default to that, that instinct that they've just been kind of born and bred on, which says, well, I believe in Sola Scriptura, and so from, that means that uh, I, I read the Bible and uh, Sola Scriptura cannot have anything to do with metaphysics. It must be a a non-metaphysic. I'm guessing you would say, well, that actually has more to do with what you call 
pura scriptura than sola scriptura. What what final word would you try to leave as as a bit of a corrective to that type of default instinct? Again, what what I, the, the first thing I, uh, that I would probably say is I applaud your love for scripture, mm. and it is good uh, to 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 um, adore the scriptures as as the um, ultimate authority within the Christian church. But if you want to uphold the authority of Scripture, um, you're going to have to have a metaphysic that is able to articulate that authority and to uphold that authority. Without a proper metaphysic, it is precisely the Scriptures that suffer most, and you'll lose the authority of Scripture. You remember your opening words, you quoted Adolf von Harnack, or you mentioned Adolf von Harnack. And it is no coincidence, it seems to me, that liberal Protestantism in the line of Adolf von Harnack attempted to uh, go with Scripture alone. And by going with Scripture entirely on its own, without any sort of metaphysical presuppositions, uh, the result is that Scripture's authority gets lost and has to make way for human subjectivity in a in a radical sense, mm-hmm. and uh, so to, if we want to uphold biblical authority, uh, we're going to have to mind the tradition and carefully look at how it is that they believed a metaphysic uh, may be may be consonant with the divine scriptures themselves. Such an important closing word. Uh, we have to make sure we do not confuse a sola, a sola scriptura approach with a non metaphysical hermeneutic, to use uh, the words of of Hans himself here. And that means that uh, actually, believe it or not, uh, paying attention to the insights of Christian Platonism, well, that actually helps us to, it actually serves to safeguard scripture in ways that really uh, keep it from being distorted, misunderstood, or misused Uh, in ways that would actually undermine not only the Christian faith, but the Christian life. To our listeners out there, if this conversation is new to you, let me just encourage you uh, to pick up a book by Hans. Uh, So many of his books are helpful at this point, but go to this chapter called No Plato, No Scripture, uh, a provocative title to be sure, but one I think you will enjoy and read and reread in order to understand not only what Christian Platonism is, but how it acts as a servant to help us understand not only Christian theology, but hermeneutics itself. Hans, thank you so much for joining us on the Credo Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Matthew. It was a real joy being with you. Thanks. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine, with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.